Hello, everybody, and welcome to Rio Tinto's 2023 results meeting. Um, as usual, a couple of housekeeping items before we, we start proceedings. Uh, can I please ask you to put your mobile phones to silent or, or turn them off? And secondly, for those here in the room today, uh, there's no fire drill planned. If you hear a fire alarm, please leave either the fire doors at the back or the front and follow the instructions of the fire marshals. Uh, Jakob and Peter will present uh, the key items of the results and uh, the forward-looking items uh, for uh, about 30 minutes, and then we'll have 45 minutes for Q&A. Uh, please limit yourself to one question and one follow-up during that Q&A session. Jakob, over to you. Yeah, thank you, Menno, and good morning, good evening uh, to everyone. Thank you for joining us. The 23rd of January was the saddest day of my five year, five and a half years at Rio Tinto. On that day, a chartered plane crashed near Fort Smith in Canada. We lost four colleagues from our diving mine and two airline crew members. We are completely devastated. When I went to Divik and Fort Smith, I saw how heartbreaking this tragedy is for the loved ones, our team, and the whole community. Our focus is on supporting everyone who has been affected as the authorities continue to investigate what has happened. A tragedy like this puts everything into perspective. It's a horrific reminder that nothing, absolutely nothing, is more important than safety. Safety continues to be our top priority, our work to evolve our culture and processes to ensure everyone everywhere goes home safely every day is never done. So allow me a moment of reflection. Thank you. I also wanted to acknowledge and pay my respect to all traditional owners and First Nations that host our operations around the world. Turning to our financials, our business is very robust. These attractive results shows fundamental strengths and stability. We have a very profitable business, a 20% return on capital employed despite one and a half billion negative impact from lower commodity prices. Our overall production has grown. We have achieved underlying earnings of 11.8 billion and we will return 7.1 billion to our shareholders, equating to a 60% payout on the ordinary dividend. And we have been investing with discipline to improve the health of our business for the long term while consistently delivering throughout the year. Even as we have stepped up our capital expenditures, made acquisitions and paid out a large dividend, our net debt is virtually unchanged from 2022 at $4.2 billion. We are resilient and we are improving our operations. Even better. There's so much more to come. Our success starts with our clear understanding that we are a long-term business. To deliver for the long-term, we are relentlessly following our purpose and our four objectives of becoming best operator, achieving impeccable ESG credentials, excel in development, and deepening our social license. 
we are also investing in the health of our people, our assets, and our ore bodies. Our culture drives performance, which is why we are developing a culture of trust based upon values of care, courage, and curiosity. We're making progress, enabling our people to improve performance by deepening the rollout of the safe production system. At the same time, we're developing our portfolio to position our business for the future. We have really stabilized and improved our iron ore business, both in terms of short-term delivery and strengthening the long-term pipeline. We are progressing projects in the Pilbara, including Western Range and Roads Ridge. We are also achieving a balance across our portfolio, kicking copper into action with the ramp-up of the underground production at Oya Tolko in Mongolia. And we are evolving our aluminium business, providing our customers with recycled options through our Metalco joint venture. We have a major challenge to repower our aluminium operations in Australia. Today, we announced a second agreement to provide some of the renewable power our Gladstone assets needs. And we are embedding co-design and co-management into our approach, working in partnerships with communities and indigenous people for mutual benefit. For example, collaborating with the Injibani Energy Corporation to explore opportunities for renewable energy projects in the Pilbara. Safe and empowered people, healthy assets and a balanced portfolio, all underpinned by social license. This is essential to achieve healthy operational and financial performance and deliver attractive returns over the long term. I'll now hand over to Peter to take you through the financials. Thank you. Thanks, Jacob. Uh, Good morning, good evening, everyone. I'm really pleased to have the opportunity to present this set of results because we've had good operational momentum with a steady improvement in our performance in the Pilbara, where we delivered iron ore shipments at the upper end of our guidance. We also had a strong start to underground operations at Oyotorgoi, and Kidamat has returned to full production. But we do still have a lot of work ahead of us. Firstly, we have some assets where we need to stabilise production. In 2023, IOC and Kennecott in particular face some challenges. And secondly, we need to push on with the implementation of the safe production system to deliver continuous productivity improvement in our operations. In summary, there is significant value remaining to be unlocked from our existing assets. On a net-net basis, our underlying EBITDA declined 9% to $23.9 billion. Cash flow from operations remains strong at $15.2 billion, but we do need to bring down inventory. Free cash flow was $7.7 billion after capital expenditure of $7.1 billion. Following dividends paid and funding of the Metalco transaction for just over $700 million, we ended the year with net debt of $4.2 billion, virtually unchanged from 2022. Overall, we delivered a healthy return on capital employed of 20% on underlying earnings of $11.8 billion. This underpinned our decision to continue our eight-year record of declaring a 60% payout on the ordinary dividend, equating to $7.1 billion. We did have some one-off items, as I presented at the half-year, 
we made an adjustment to the carrying value of our Gladstone refineries. In the second half, we increased the closure estimates for a number of closed assets, in particular ERA. As ever, markets are the biggest determinant of annual volatility in our financials, and 2023 was no different. Overall, the price impact was negative, although it is important to call out the stability of iron ore markets during the period. Despite the PLATS index being broadly flat, our realised iron ore price was actually 2% higher due to higher relativity of lower grade products. The copper market was largely stable year on year, with prices declining 3%. We've recently seen some disruptions in mine supply, about 1 million tonnes, resulting in much stronger concentrate markets. We're also seeing the effects of the energy transition on demand coming through, particularly from the EV market. Aluminium demand continues to increase, although at a lower rate. We saw our realised price come down by 18%, with lower LME price as well as market and product premium. The behaviour of the aluminium price reflects its increased exposure to consumer markets. Let me now provide some context to the iron ore price stability. Critically, 2023 was the fourth year with Chinese steel production above 1 1 billion tonnes. The big driver was a significant increase in net steel exports to 84 million tonnes, mainly to Southeast Asia. China is also experiencing a fundamental change in demand. As shown by the chart on the left, since 2019, we've seen a steady rise in its share of finished steel demand going into infrastructure, the energy sector and manufacturing, with properties share declining. Turning now to the EBITDA movement. In aggregate, commodity prices lowered EBITDA by $1.5 billion, primarily driven by aluminium. Weaker currencies in Australia and Canada offset this by about $600 million. The real positive in the period, though, was the 3% rise in copper equivalent production. The increase in Pilbara output was a big factor behind this growth and added $600 million. In copper, we benefited from the Oyotogoi underground ramp-up. But there was some offset at Kennecott due to a conveyor failure in the first half and the planned rebuild of the smelter in the second and third quarters. Aluminium production was 9% higher as Kitimat returned to full production. However, we're not yet seeing the extra metal volume flow into higher earnings due to the additional costs of the ramp-up. Reducing these is going to be a key focus area for 2024. So somewhat counterintuitively, we're showing a negative volume variance for aluminium, which reflects lower value-added product sales of around 100 million. Our ongoing exploration and evaluation expenditure in 2023 was $900 million, which compares with guidance of around $1 billion. We saw a significant step up at activities at Simondu, which we continued to expense until the end of the third quarter. Net-net, E&E was around $300 million higher than last year. More broadly, however, other options are progressing. And at the front end of the pipeline, we now have the best exploration portfolio we've had for some time, having consistently invested in this area over the years. 
The cost picture is covered by several bars in this chart, but let me try and summarise what we're seeing in broad terms. Firstly, as foreseen at the half year, we did see the reversal of some market-based costs, particularly aluminium raw materials. You can see this in the first section of the chart. Secondly, many of our costs are under contracts, which renew periodically. As a consequence, the spike in inflation was only reflected in 2023 on renewal of these contracts. This process now looks to be largely complete. Thirdly, we continue to see some cost pressures from tight labour markets, particularly the Pilbara, Quebec and Utah. Again, these are in the unit cost variants. We have separated out the effects of the operational disruptions at Kennecott and IOC. You can see on the chart that they drove up our unit costs to the tune of $600 million. Overall, we do believe a lot of the forces driving up costs are now starting to moderate. and We expect to see more stability in the cost base going forward. Our business continues to be highly cash generative. This chart reconciles EBITDA and cash flow. Our cash conversion ratio was 63%, compared to 61% in 2022, when tax payments were substantially higher. The half year I did say I expected working capital to reduce in the second half, but instead it stayed roughly flat. We saw reductions in some areas, such as raw materials, but the extended Kennecott smelter shut and softness in the TIO2 market meant that the aggregate balance of inventory did not come down as expected. This was compounded by the rise in the iron ore price late in the year, increasing balance sheet receivables. These were turned into cash in early 2024. We also had lower dividends from equity accounted units, mostly related to Escondida. Finally, the major driver of provisions is closure. We have a number of active projects underway, with just under $800 million spent in 2023. Looking forward, we expect to spend around $1 billion per year as we advance activities at the various sites. Spend will vary year to year as we execute individual programs of work, and we continue to look at structural opportunities to reduce our closure exposure. On to product group performance. Iron ore had a strong year, its second highest on record for shipments. Kudadari is at nameplate capacity, and we're extracting more volumes from the safe production system, with a 5 million tonne uplift in 2023. We're targeting another 5 million tonnes this year, with the combined 10 million tonne benefit delivering significant incremental value to the business. We expect a small increase in unit costs in 2024, reflecting ongoing type labour markets in Western Australia and costs associated with material movement and maintenance in our system. We're building a much stronger aluminium business. It was a tough year as the price dropped and margins compressed. However, as I said, Kitimat is now back to full capacity and we're making investments in North America that really strengthen this business for the future. These include investing in the AP60 technology and in Metalco, with the latter giving us exposure to recycled products. As Jakob mentioned, it is really positive to see the Oyo Tolgoi mine investment starting to pay off, with the ramp of production from the underground. And at Kennecott, our focus is to stabilise the operation, following the completion 
of the smelter rebuild. Lastly, it was a challenging year for minerals from both an operational and market perspective. IOC lost one month of production in June due to wildfires, and we had some operational impacts in the third quarter. Whilst at our iron and titanium Quebec operations, three furnaces remain offline in response to weak market conditions. Moving on to capital allocation. Now, you've seen this slide showing our approach many times. My key message today is that nothing has changed. Sustaining capital, high returning replacement projects and decarbonisation remain our first priority, where we're forecasting around $7 billion of spend per year, unchanged from previous guidance. That is followed by the ordinary dividend and then compelling growth. We believe that $3 billion remains the right level for us to invest in growth, and our largest project is expected to be our equity share of Simendu, while CapEx at Oyotoge Underground will wind down as we complete key infrastructure investments. We expect the remainder to be mainly invested in copper and lithium projects, some of which are yet to be sanctioned. But as I've said many times before, we will remain very disciplined. Our investments in growth are highly dependent on the timing of commitments, but most importantly, by our ability to generate value. Just turning now to the key financials for Simendu. As previously guided, we saw $900 million of spend incurred on the project in 2023, $500 million of which is our share, and $400 million will be refunded by our Simfa JV partner, Chalco Iron Ore Holdings. This includes $300 million of qualifying costs, which we started to capitalise from 1 October. In 2024, we expect our share of spend to be around $2 billion. I was very pleased actually to have the opportunity to visit the project last month. And I must say, I was pretty impressed to see the progress being made on the ground. Finally, the dividend. We have declared a 60% payout for the full year, which equates to $7.1 billion, an attractive dividend yield of more than 6%. We've remained very consistent with our shareholder returns policy with a 60% payout on ordinary dividends and 71% total payout across the last eight years. This highlights our continued discipline. Our net debt is unchanged year on year and this financial strength means we can accelerate our decarbonisation investment, reinvest for growth and continue to pay attractive dividends through the cycle. And with that... Let me hand back to Jakob. Thank you, Peter. Rio Tinto is opportunity-rich and well-positioned. Our core markets are growing. We are at the heart of the energy transition and new opportunities are emerging. We're stretching our capabilities but we are not doing more than we can execute. This discipline allows us to pursue a stable and profitable growth pathway. Our overall copper equivalent growth or production was up by over 3% in 2023. Based on our midpoint production guidance for 2024, we expect a further 2% year-on-year growth. It was only three years ago that we defined our four objectives. We had some repair work to do then. Now we are going from strength to strength and we are just getting started. 
Productivity at our Pilbara iron ore operation is really improving. We had the second highest shipments on record and a 5 million tons production uplift from the safe production system. Meanwhile, we are on track to deliver 1 million tons of copper per annum by the end of the decade with the ramp up of the oil tolkoi on track. And decarbonization remains at the heart of our strategy. We're committed to reducing our scope one and two emissions by 50% by 2030 and reaching net zero by 2050. We're also working closely with our customers to help them beat their own targets addressing our scope three. We have said from the start, this is both a huge challenge and a huge opportunity, and there's still uncertainty in the delivery. But we have created more definition around how we'll achieve our targets, and I believe we are finding an economical pathway in partnerships with governments, customers, and communities. On decarbonization, we are moving from strategy and target setting to real actions, and we are making these strides in a way that makes good business sense. We're making progress with renewables, most significantly repowering our aluminium Pacific operation, a hugely challenging but vital part of our decarbonization journey. At the same time, we're using research and development to reimagine our manufacturing processes, including a breakthrough piloting of our blue, smel- blue smelting technology, which reduces emissions from processing ilmenite into titanium dioxide. Our amazing R&D teams are also making progress in many areas, including Newton for copper and Elysis for aluminium. Finally, we are developing our aluminium business to offer a full suite of options. The Metalco joint venture in North America provides our customers with recycled aluminium at scale, complementing our portfolio of low-carbon primary aluminium. We are also making progress, important progress to decarbonize our iron ore business. We're working on over 50 projects to unlock the most sustainable and economic pathways for our iron ores, future-proofing our business in a way that makes good business sense. We recently announced a partnership with BHP and Bluescope to develop Australia's first iron-making electric smelting furnace pilot plant. By sharing our capabilities and knowledge, we can accelerate our progress. We are again leveraging our extensive R&D capabilities. We are excited about bioiron to support low carbon steel making. And finally, we are using high grade iron ore from Canada to help feed and accelerate low carbon steel making. Simandu's high grade low impurity formation is a rare opportunity to diversify and grow our portfolio portfolio, particularly as demand increases for grades suitable for greener steel. At our investor day in December, we gave our estimate for our share of the capital expenditure needed to unlock this exceptional project. And the Rio Tinto board has this week approved the project, subject to the remaining conditions being met. This includes joint venture partner approvals and regulatory approvals from China and Guinea. We are engaging with authorities in Guinea following the dissolution of the government. But we have been in Guinea for 50 years and we have safely continued our operations throughout. We expect that will continue to be the case. We are working with our partners towards full sanction of Simandu 
and we're really excited about uh, this project. We have much more work to do, but we are already well positioned to continue delivering value to our shareholders. At Rio Tinto, we are gradually changing the culture of our company. It's a long journey, but in the last three weeks I've been to six assets and I'm pleased to see that the culture change is actually really happening. We are progressing towards a workplace where people feel included, respected, empowered and step up and take accountability. We're improving the asset health, learning from still too many operational challenges and improving access to all bodies in close partnerships with traditional owners. And I hope those of you who joined us at our Investor Day got a taste of our exploration pipeline, one of the best we ever have had. These are the foundations of our success, operational improvements with a learning mindset, and in parallel developing a portfolio for the future with a focus on decarbonization. We're also delivering for today with disciplined growth and attractive financials that allow us to reward our shareholders and invest in the health of our business. Our business is robust, we are opportunity rich, and the best, I believe, is yet to come. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Jakob and Peter. It's, uh, it's uh, now time for Q&A. Also, thank you for those in, uh, in Sydney and Melbourne for, for staying uh, late today. It's, it's much appreciated. Uh, so we'll start Q&A. Please state your name and the company that you're from. Um, one question and one follow-up, and please don't fold three questions into, into those two, uh, or six into those two, which I used to do. Uh, uh, <laughs> we'll start with one in the room, and then we'll take two in the, on the phone, and then we'll get two back here. We, we have enough time for the next uh, 49 minutes, so, so we'll get through it. Um, I think somebody has to leave early. Richard, you want to start? Because you have to leave. Yeah, thanks. Thanks very much. Uh, good morning, Richard Hatch from Berenberg. Um, first question, on iron ore costs, um, can you just talk to us a bit about how you're going to get to that medium-term target of $20? I think the, the guidance is about sort of uh, for this year is a good sort of 10 15% above that. So I guess there's going to be some productivity, some levers. Your peers seem to be cutting costs. Perhaps that's going to impact their medium-term flexibility. So can you just talk about what you're going to do to... To, to get there? Thanks. Yeah. So, look, uh, I'll ask Peter to explain uh, the exact pathway to get there. But what is absolutely clear, and you might say that this year's unit cost target is not super stretchy, I want people in the Pilbara to get the maintenance done, to get, to get every time we have an issue, to take the full learning and make sure that we address it systemically. Because it's a wonderful asset, and it deserves to be in the best possible shape. So, you know, the first point is, the, 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 the first game is not the unit cost. It's a long game where you have to get there. And what I, I was just at Tom Price two weeks ago, and when I saw what they're doing there, Tom Price is like 65 years old. What they're doing now is fundamentally making the plant much better and can get it back to close to nameplate capacity. It, things have changed a lot since, since it was built, etc. But I see that we are structurally doing the right things. So the SPS system is kicking in, much, much more focus on asset management. I'm old school calling it maintenance. Spending the money in the right way, having more internal resources to get the job done in the right way, that is 
just improving us, and that will get us to our medium-term target. Peter, do you want to comment on how we get the, the numbers right? Absolutely. So, uh, I mean, if we look at uh, 2024, I mean, we've, we've taken the bottom of that range based on really what we achieved in the second half of, uh, of 2023. And then we are still seeing tight labour markets on top of that. And we still have a system where we need to do more material movement and, uh, and some more maintenance, as sort of Jacob says. So I, I think that that then says the top and really the, 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 where we land is going to be how well we drive productivity through the system. And I think there is real momentum, but that's going to be the factor which drives it down. I mean, you know, we said $20 uh, uh, 2023 terms. I mean, we'll, we'll sort of then have a set of uh, more investments in the middle of the decade, which, which helps sort of strengthen the system as well towards that, uh, that, that midterm. Um, but it's, it's the combination of, of sort of renewing the, the, the asset base or the, the, the mine base, if you like, and driving that productivity and maintenance that's going to get us to the $20 real 2023. Okay, helpful, thanks. Um, second one's just on your TIA2 sort of business. Um, Zolti South's been on hold for you know, a long time. Um, if you look at the small cap arena, you know, you've, you've put your foot on Sovereign. Um, some of the other small cap names, are, are, you know, there's no value in, in, you know, attributed to the market. You, you've got this blue um, smelting yeah. for Ilmenite. You know, does, you know, would you consider inorganic opportunities for, you know, mispriced Ilmenite assets such as, you know, like you know, Kenmare Bay, something like that? Or, or is, is, are you happy with what you've got in the portfolio? Thanks. I love our titanium slack business, but it is not without challenges. It's actually the product where we have the highest global market share. It's quite a unique body, but we need to make sure of that our manufacturing sites has got sufficiently feed from the mining. And therefore, we are actually re-looking again at the salty south. That would be really, really, really good to unlock that part. Um, I do think that blue smelting is very important because Sorel is the world's largest producer of titanium slag. It has got 1.1 million tons of CO2 emission. And we think that there's a pathway to fundamentally decarbonize that. So that 70-year-old site could get a complete new life. But around the manufacturing, we have a Sorel and we have at Richards Bay, it's really world scale, and we just need to be sure we can feed the system. On top of that, there are some challenges in terms of the, the customer landscape is changing, and we need to be sure of that our business fit the needs of the customer for the future. So we are looking at things and how to, how to, how to address it. I don't necessarily think that uh, it will require inorganic uh, things. We are doing a bit of exploration as well, and we might actually find some... We're looking at some very interesting prospects there. So I see a great business that does not necessarily require big M&A. Appreciate it. Thanks. Uh, Operator, can we take two questions uh, from the line, please? Yes, of course. Now we're going to take our first question. And the question comes line of Paul Young from Goldman Sachs. Your line is open. Please ask your question. Thank you. Morning, Jakob and Peter. Hope you're well. Um, Jakob, the first question is on capital allocation. The balance sheet's strong. The growth pipeline is best in years. The dividend payouts at at 60%. But what's missing from from here is the buyback. Um, um, But we know the limitations with the major shareholders. So now that you're committing to Simindu with Chinalco, Jakob, have you spoken to Chinalco about them potentially selling into a buyback? Yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's a highly relevant question and it reminds me as CEO, I always have, have things that I haven't done <laughs> uh, and it's, it's probably a dialogue that we, 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 need, we need to do. It's been very intense and we have 
very much deepened our ties to both Chinalco and Bau in going through the Simendu process. But I do think, Paul, uh, it's a little bit less urgent than it was in the past. If you look back in time, we had a decade where we didn't grow. And if you don't grow as a company, then, of course, it's hyper important on how well you're sending uh, cash back to the shareholders. Now we are growing 2 to 3% a year, profitable growing. And we are paying at the top of our policy. We are consistently paying 60%. But actually, at the end of the day, it's 60% of a net income grow, net income uh, stream. So if you can grow the income stream, that's probably a, a quite good way. And, and of course, it goes without saying, it requires a little bit more capex to create that growth than, than, than in the past. If you look at the past, our capex composition was mainly sustainable capex, replacement mines, etc. Now we have a bigger uh, uh, growth component. Plus, we cannot take away from the fact, uh, Paul, that we do need to put some capital towards decarbonizing our business. And that is kind of, in my view, future-proofing it. But it kind of takes a little bit the pressure off. I don't want to rule it out. And, and I think you're right. When you look at the numbers, we are a plus $100 billion company with uh, only a couple of billion dollars of, 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 pay, of, of debt. So we could pay more back. Um, yes, I'll take, I'll take up the challenge. I'll probably talk a bit more about that. Okay, that's, that's great. Um, look forward to that. Um, and then second question, Jakob, is on the copper growth and CapEx inflation. Peter called out labor inflation in the Pilbara, US and Canada, but he didn't mention Chile. Um, we saw BHP this week announce that they're deferring the new concentrated Escondida by one to two years due to CapEx inflation. It looks like they're preferring to expand the heap leach. Um, just curious about what's your view on this decision? Yeah, look, um, I think uh, BHP and Ryu has uh, only improved this corporation in the last few years, both on resolution and on Escondida. And uh, I think BHP are taking very sound decisions here. We shouldn't forget we have been extracting uh, from Escondida for 20, 30 years and it's still the world's largest copper ore body. It is an amazing ore body. But obviously what we need to do is get the value out and therefore if we can find solution that has lower capital intensity, that's great. We're also testing at Escondida our Newton technology mm -hmm. and uh, if we can really get leaching to work at scale, it's, it goes without saying that, that that's much cheaper than the very capital-intensive uh, concentrator route. Okay, that's great. Thanks, Jacob. Thank you. Operator, next question from the line, please. Yes, of course. Thank you. Now we're going to take our next question. And the next question comes from the line of Khan Pekker from RBC. Your line is open. Please ask a question. Uh, good morning, Jacob and Peter. Um, the first question is on uh, Rio sales. Um, just wondering if you've been able to achieve preferential terms with customers for low carbon products, particularly um, uh, this year as we see decarbonisation efforts pick up um, and I suppose more talking towards the aluminium low carbon assets. Yeah, thank you. Uh, <clears throat> we do get a premium, uh, but if you ask me, but actually it doesn't matter what the premium would be, I would always give you the answer that is not high enough. Uh, uh, but it is, we do get a premium, but it is, uh, it's in the teens of, of dollars per tons and it should be in the hundreds of dollars of tons. But, but so, so there's work to be done. It's too early. We only closed the deal with Metalco on 1st of December. But let's just face it, it is an amazing opportunity to now being at scale, a producer of both primary and secondary mm. aluminium, and our customer loves it. And we need to 
to, to turn it in so it doesn't just become a win for the customer, but it becomes a win both for the customer and for Rio Tinto. Sure. Um, my second question is on OT. I think over the last six months, uh, underground volumes have been relatively flattish, but development's been um, progressing, including draw bells. Um, when should we see the next step up in volumes out of the underground? Is it when the conveyor is complete in 2H? Thanks. It goes... I honestly believe it goes extremely well according to mm. schedule. How would you pro- describe it, Peter, the, the progress ahead of us? Yeah, completely right. I mean, I think we'll just see it continue to ramp up uh, into 2024 uh, from, from the first panel. Um, you know, the, that, that, that's key. And we're still on track for that ramp up till 500,000 tonnes in 2028. Um, and all the infrastructure development still on track for all the guidance we've given with the uh, secondary crusher, second crusher finished uh, at the back end of 2025. I think my short answer is that there's plenty of challenges around in Rio Tinto, but I'm struggling to see the things that goes wrong in, in, in Oyotolko. I'm, I'm very impressed with that development. Jason? Thank you. And I'm Bob Affer. Yeah. So, uh, Jason Fairclough, uh, Bank of America. Um, just a question, I guess, about a commodity which I think is absent from your presentation, which is lithium, right? Yeah. So we, it wasn't that long ago. Everybody was quite excited about it. Prices down 85%. Uh, some people would look at this and say, isn't this a great opportunity to do some inorganic growth? So how are you thinking about lithium? How are you thinking about using that balance sheet? Yeah. How do you look, think about Alcan? I, I, I think, Jason... And Peter is often reminding me that it takes us back to a very good old mantra of Rio Tinto. Namely, it's not just about we are excited about a product, a certain product. No, we are interested in getting into the best ore bodies and we need to develop things at the left side of the cost curve. And we actually believe that the development in Argentina can be a very good development. And we believe that one of the best ore bodies that exist in the industry is in Serbia. But we do need to get the government's approval. We do need to get social license for, for being able to develop that. So that's really where our focus is. And yes, it's down 85%, but it's actually just back to where it was before the bubble. We have always said lithium prices are bound to be extremely volatile. But I will say to you, when it comes to battery materials, and I think that's very important, Uh, And I I, I owe a great thanks to our chief economist that many years ago said to us, it's very difficult to predict how batteries will develop, but it looks like almost any composition will have lithium. And that's exactly what is happening. You've seen in China now two-thirds of batteries are LFP, i.e. without uh, cobalt and nickel, but with lithium in. So I do believe in lithium, but don't expect us just to go out in order to grow, Legion will be thinking about what are the, the strong ore bodies where we can use technology and develop something really, really good. And yes, prices have gone down on lithium companies, but not as much as the price on, on lithium in itself. So you could argue that they're still very expensive. Can I, can I just push you on this a little bit? So you should. The, the projects that you're talking about, I mean, for a little while, it seemed like the one in Serbia was approved and then it wasn't approved. But when we put it in the model, it wasn't really that material. And so I suppose to push you, inorganic growth could give you scale that's maybe more appropriate for a $100 billion company than a little organic growth project in Argentina or Serbia. 
I love to be pushed, and sometimes I push back. Uh, may, I, may I remind you that the world market for aluminium is 98 million tons. The world market for copper is 32 million tons. And the world market last year for lithium was 0.8 million tons. It's just different scales. Well, we'll go left, right to left. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Bob Brackett at Bernstein. You've guided to less than but approaching $3 billion of growth capex this year, next year, following year. For the first two years, the moving pieces are quite clear. In year three, they're less clear. Uh, you've got competing uh, opportunities, perhaps. So the two questions would be, one, what's competing, sort of explicitly copper and lithium, but a, a little more specifically? And two, why do they have to compete? Why are you capping uh, growth capex at $3 billion if the projects hit hurdle rates and clearly you can fund them? I, I completely agree with that. Now, Peter has a role to do to make sure, to make sure that, that there's money in the, you know. Uh, but, but I actually look completely different at it. I look at our pool of technical resources and I ask ourselves, how much can we do? And I hate if they only have a half-time job. So I like to stretch them, but I have tried before in my career, when I was in energy, to see what happens to a company if a company undertakes one project too many. Then all the project starts falling apart. And I just don't want to get real there. So it's really a, an assessment of what are we able to do. I am, for example, very happy that we are doing Simandu uh, with three partners, because that means that we are sco we, our scope is less than half. And that is executable. I'm also very happy that we took in First Quantum to help us, or to, they are actually driving the development of Lagrania, because when we decided to do Rincon, I realized we could not do Lagrania. Lagrania is a much more complex project than, than Rincon. So it's much more that kind of what our technical capability stretched them, but not overstretched them. So that, that was sort of the, the uh, second half of the question. The, by absence, it's interesting, the word resolution, I couldn't find it in uh, the uh, materials. Uh, we've mentioned some other projects. What, what are the projects that are competing for that technical capability? No, no, but your, your resolution, I really believe in resolution. And I was in Washington, D.C. last week, and I'm talking to it. But, okay, it's not a big presentation here today. Because the reality is, it's not in my hand for the next step. We need to see the land swap happening. We're doing, I'm so pleased with the local team. We are engaging with all the, the First Nations people and we are making really good progress there. But as you know, there's also a dispute in the Ninth Circuit and we'll have to await the outcome of that. Thank you. Before we go back online, Bob, uh, page 15 of the press release resolution in the future options table. <laughs> you nearly got me in trouble here, young man. We'll talk about it afterwards. <laughs> uh, Nadia, can we have two more questions from the line, please, before we go back in the room? Yes, of course. Now we're going to take the question from the line of uh, Rahul Anand from Morgan Stanley. Your line is open. Please ask your question. Oh, hi. Good morning, Jacob, Peter, Menno. Um, Look, uh, two from me. Firstly, in terms of Simandu, um, you know, this has been well flagged for some time, but uh, looking at the sustaining capex numbers of dollar a tonne at the mine and $2 a tonne at the infrastructure side, um, I just wanted to test you on those estimates a bit and, and try to figure out 
you know, if we compare these numbers to what's being achieved in the Pilbara, admittedly for older assets, mm. um, and even if we look at Fortescue's assets, which are more recent, the numbers are significantly higher, and these are life of mine estimates. So is is this asset or project being built differently that, that you know, you can keep those sustaining costs as low? Um, and then for my follow-up, um, you know, slide 10 talks about more flat steel use. Um, just wanted to get your views on how you see that feeding into additional iron ore demand um, this year and perhaps into next year if you've done any sort of internal modelling around scrap use. Uh, that's my two. Peter? So, well, I think, I think you, you, you actually said it yourself in terms, of, uh, in terms of those sustaining capital numbers. I mean, these are, these are new assets. We are talking life of, life of mind sort of uh, overall averages that... Uh, that, that will be inflated up um, because these are real terms numbers that we've given. So I don't think there's anything I'd particularly point to. I think we're, th- those are the numbers that, uh, that we're using and I think pretty, pretty comfortable with them um, uh, that we're embedded in the do modelling. Excellent. Steel. And steel? Steel, the uh, China steel month. Yeah, I'm, I mean, uh, well, I think, I think, you know, we've seen four, four years, as I said, of kind of steel uh, uh, production, crude steel production over a billion tonnes. And that's clearly being, uh, being good for iron ore. Uh, this year, clearly, you know, well, 23, clearly the 84 million tonnes of exports were an important uh, component part of that. Um, but, you know, absolutely, we, we've always said that we would see sort of China steel demand peaking. And it's exactly what we've said. And then you just see uh, uh, demand sort of from elsewhere in ASEAN and, and in, in India growing as well. So I think, I think all of this is playing out exactly pretty much as we thought it would play out over time. Uh, Peter, just to uh, quickly follow up on that, just um, you know, you've, you've flagged how manufacturing is increasing as a proportion. And I guess my question is more around the use of scrap in the mix of steel production. And obviously when you move away from scrap, Iron ore units continue to rise. Is that a is that a trend that you think continues perhaps to support the iron ore market? Is that part of your internal modelling as well? Because you've presented, um, you know, solar cell production up a lot, uh, and you know a lot of other manufacturing uses of steel rising, which then obviously leads to better demand for iron ore units as scrap use, yep. uh, you know, becomes reduced. So certainly, well, in all our modelling, we would see scrap uh, increasing on an increasing trend as part of those overall iron units. So absolutely, absolutely right. Um, so differentiating between the sort of change in the demand profile and the, uh, and the iron units that feed it, we absolutely see, uh, we see sort of uh, uh, that scrap piece as being an important part of the mix. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Next question from the now, line, please. Nadia? Yes, now we're going to take the next question. And the question comes from the line of Lyndon Fagan from JP Morgan. Your line is open. Please ask your question. Oh, thanks very much. Um, the first one I had was just on the billion dollar a year spend on closure provisions yeah. or, or cash out the door on closure costs. I'm wondering if you could elaborate on the scope of work there and I mean, are we just dragging that right indefinitely? I'm just trying to get a feel for how we schedule that and whether it inflates over time. And then the the second question I had was just on the aluminium assets. So I guess still losing money in alumina has to break even. I'm wondering whether the new power announcement today will help 
alleviate some costs and whether there's any benefits from that repowering agreement. Thanks. Yeah. No, thank you. Um, uh, Peter and the audit committee has uh, very appropriately uh, uh, provided uh, for uh, closure, and it is a very big amount you can find in, 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 uh, in our annual report. Uh, but that is what goes with mining. And right now, of course, we are doing some of the world's largest closure projects on uh, EIA, Argyle and, uh, and Gove in Australia. And that's the big uh, cash out, uh, uh, um, outflow in the years to come. I think the key thing is, at the end of the day, it just has to be done very, very well and be executed well. And we're looking at that. I think they're really doing a great job in Gove. I think we have had troubles in EIA, but we are finding a pathway forward where we can do things in, in the most efficient way. And uh, there has also been a bit noise on exactly what the scope should be in Argyle, but we're also finding the way there. Ultimately, you should think about it like projects. It just has to be really well scoped and setting a high bar, but really well scoped and then executed very, very well. Yep. Second part, uh, your question on, um, on aluminium. Um, it's a tough business in that sense, but it also represents a massive opportunity. We are the Western world's largest producer of aluminium. The Western world is structurally short in aluminium, and we are now also uh, at scale into uh, recyclable. So we are building a stronger and stronger aluminium business, and sometimes it's not a bad thing to do that while uh, the profitability in the industry is low. Um, it's too early to answer your question on what would it mean to the cost structure with the new renewable deal. So because we have done two things, the biggest solar farm in Australia we are building, the biggest wind, power, uh, wind farm in Australia we are building, that was the announcement this morning. But ultimately, the next step has to come from the Queensland government and the Commonwealth, namely to offer Rio Tinto uh, competitively priced firming power. And if we can't get that to work, then we don't have a long-term solution for our Pacific aluminium business. So uh, you will have to wait a bit on getting your answers, but let's ju let me be very clear. We are super focused on that. We want to protect the Australian business, but we have to bear in mind that it is not an Australian business. It's an export business that competes with our aluminium in Canada, that competes with aluminium from the Middle East, everywhere. So we need to make sure that it becomes competitive. Uh, but it is also probably the biggest manufacturing assets remaining in Australia. So it is, I would argue, we are in the same boat. We should be interested in finding a viable pathway forward for, for those assets. Thank you. Perfect. Let's go back in the room. Alain first, and Chris. Behind you. Uh, uh, Thank you. Uh, this is Alan Gabriel at Morgan Stanley. So uh, the first question is on uh, Simandu. Uh, there was a timing disparity between when you pay for Simandu CapEx and when you get reimbursed by your partners. Should we expect this disparity to continue going forward? Or will it close? That's the first question. So Alan, at closure, the finance closure, when all those approvals are in place, we'll, we will get repaid. Thank you. And the second question is probably for Jakob. The spread between your limited and the PLC lines is back into focus, given how elevated it is at the moment. Should we see this as a catalyst to revisit the whole DLC debate? The whole which? Uh, the whole collapse of the DLC, basically. <laughs> Dual listed structure. Oh, DLC. DLC. Mm -hmm. Ah, that question is for you. But, but, but look, 
it, 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 it's terrible because I'm going to answer the same question I said before. On my list of CEO agenda items, there's, there's always a number of things I can't hit. And the DNC is the smallest issue to my mind. It serves us well to be a global business. It's not bad to have a headquarter here in London. The DLC works very well. Yes, we have two company secretaries, and we could probably say one company secretary, but, but it makes no sense to, for us to focus on. The, the DLC works very well for Rio Tinto. Thank you. Chris. Hey, thanks. Good morning. It's Crystal Femina from Jefferies. So you mentioned First Quantum earlier. They announced last night a long list of measures to kind of aggressively repair their balance sheet. And one of them was bringing in a strategic partner for the Zambian copper assets as a possibility. My first question is, is that something that you could potentially do something with? Would you be interested in being a minority non-operating owner of a relatively high-quality asset base in copper? Mm. That's first. Yeah, so thank you. Um, We... uh do a lot in Africa, not just in Guinea and in South Africa and Madagascar where we're operating, but we do a lot of exploration. So we are very close to the governments uh, in the mineral-rich countries in, in, in Africa. And we are open to look into business in those places. But I always ask myself, what, what are you bringing to the table? And just a non-operated minority share what are we really bringing to the table? I don't want to rule it out, but it's just my question is if I can, when my, a lot of people, particularly bold, comes to me and says, <laughs> we should do this, we should do that, etc. So I, the first question I ask is just, what are we bringing to the table here? And if I can't get an answer to that, you will probably not see us investing in that. But, but yes, we would love to uh, go deeper into a couple of African countries. Thanks for that. And secondly, just on SP10, uh, you had a I mean, the portion of iron ore production that has been SP10 has been rising over the last four or five years. I think last year it was quite a bit higher than initially expected. Mm. I think when we were in the Pilbara back in the fall, you explained why that was the case. But just wondering how that production mix will shift over the next couple of years. I mean, obviously, by the end of the decade with Rhodes Ridge, the problem kind of goes away. But first question is how that production mix shifts. And then secondly, maybe more importantly, how do you expect those price discounts to trend over the next two, three years? Thank you. But look, this is the $100 uh, question that we are also working in our strategy, and I don't have a full answer to you. One of the things that we have done, in my view, very well over the last couple of years is we have really reinstated a good understanding of our ore bodies. And And on top of that, the way we are working with traditional owners of the land is just at a different scale than it was in the past, post-Yukon. And those two things have, unfortunately, you can't fool the rocks. It's a given thing. Uh, and on top of that, you cannot freely access land. You need to... It's a partnership. So those two things have led to elevated levels of SP10. And then you have a bit of a choice on how much absolute volume are you, are you producing versus the, the, the share of SP10. And that's what we want to spend a bit of time on in our strategy now, saying what is it actually that best served to the market, more volume and with elevated level of SP10 or other products, etc. So it's an open question. But what I will say to you is we have more information now. We work in harmony with the traditional owners of the land, and we know what we can producing. But you're right. We have learned lessons that, that it was difficult to just meet the, 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 the Pilbara blend uh, uh, great uh, at, at, 
at that scale that we had hoped so. So, uh, so I, I'll say we will keep on informing you more about, about that level. You should expect the next few years uh, elevated levels of SP10. Yeah. And, and price discounts? <laughs> uh, well, Chris, what's, what's the steel market going to be like? I mean, it's, it's, you know, all I can say is last year it was very good. We were getting uh, relativities above 90%. Mm. Um, let's go back to the, to, the, uh, to the line. Nadia, can we have two more questions on the line, please? Yes, of course. The next question comes from the line of Lachlan Shaw from UBS. Your line is open. Please ask your question. Uh, good morning, Jakob. Thanks for uh, your time. Two questions from me. So just on Pacific Aluminium decarb and the firming, just interested what technologies are shaping up there and then in, in the way that you're thinking about that commercial negotiation, do you see yourselves having to impute a carbon price to get the economics to fly um, in terms of that decarbonisation process? I'll come back with my second question. Thank you. It's a super good question. You should uh, probably ask it to the Australian government because the way I, the way I look at it is, and, and, and I would say I learn a lot, and I think we as an organization learn a lot. We need to, be, to learn much more about new energy systems because re- renewable energy systems are inherently much less stable and therefore more complex to firm up. But it, it is probably a combination of batteries, gas peakers, and maybe some existing infrastructure. Ultimately, the firming, uh, as anticipated, is how is access the grid. So it's not our firming, but it is the Queensland government's firming. Uh, so, so I can't... I mean, from, from my perspective, it doesn't matter. What I'm focusing at is how can I get a, a competitively priced firm power uh, with the lowest possible uh, carbon footprint. Got it. Understood. Thank you. So, and the second question is just on um, iron ore and just around the China Mineral Resource Group. I'm just wondering, are you seeing um, or experiencing any sort of differentiated pricing terms with CMRG yet? Is is there any sort of difference in the terms that you're realising between CMRG and your existing portfolio of steel mill customers? Thank you. Well, it's two sides of the same coin, isn't it? Because our major customers are in China and we work through CMR. We have had entirely uh, um, constructive engagements. We are trying to find things that can work for both parties. And we have progressed on many things. We made an agreement last year and we are progressing on another agreement, etc. And uh, they are, by any standard, the biggest buyer of iron ore. So obviously we have to listen very carefully to them and and find uh, mutually acceptable solutions. But uh, I can't really comment on ongoing negotiations. Next question, Nadia, please. Yes, of course. Just give me a moment. And now we're going to take our next question. And it comes from the line of Robert Stein from Macquarie. Your line is open. Please ask a question. Excuse me, Robert, your line is open. Thank you. Um, So just a quick question on Guinea. So um, the obvious dissolution of the government there um, the other day, the project is still awaiting some approvals, but is, yeah, by all accounts, progressing um, well. W- what do you think the major risk is to Simindu off the back of that 
um, dissolution of government? Is it that the approvals get delayed, the project gets delayed? Um, do you, is it that the project continues on, but there is a renegotiation of the financial terms with the government? What, what, are, the, what are the major risks that you see there? I, I don't think so. Um, the president is the president, and he wants, and the government wants now, the government is dissolved, they all want to progress Simendu. Uh, what we have been awaiting has been some approvals in China, and that is progressing according to schedule. So, so I don't think that it should lead to delay. I cannot give you 100% guarantees, but that was what I was saying in my presentation. We have actually operated in uh, 50 years in Guinea with continuous production despite many changes in government. And, and just to follow up, the closed border, will that, in, will, that in, will that change how technical staff can come to the project and work on the project, or is that um, largely absent for your workforce? Yeah. Border restrictions, etc. Is there any impact on our operations? That's right. Here's the question. Uh, you might know more than I know, but no. I'm not aware of that. No. 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 Thank you. Right. Let's go back in the room. Grant and Liam, and then we'll come back that way. Hi, uh, it's uh, Grant Sporer from Bloomberg Intelligence. Um, it's just a follow-up, uh, really, on a question that's been asked. In terms of your your um, sort of closure uh, costs going forward, are you planning to um, exclude them from underlying earnings going forward? Um, and the reason I'm asking is it just strikes me as it, it's now become sort of business as usual for at least for the next few years. So should it, should it actually be excluded? So, so the answer is we don't. For, for, ongoing, for our ongoing assets, we do exclude them. For closed assets that have been closed, and most of them are legacy assets, we exclude them if they're, if they're material. So we, it's for most of our assets, the closure cost in the year, the accumulation of the provision, goes through the, the income statement. Okay, so just so I understand, I know it's a technical point. You've basically provisioned for it, and that's why you, you, can, you, you can exclude it. Okay, got so, it. So when you think about the billion dollars of cash flow, there's two components. There's projects we're working on now, but there is also continuous uh, rehabilitation work we're doing around all our assets that is part of that billion dollars. So all of that cash flow is uh, part of our operating cash flow. So the $15.2 billion of operating cash flow is after that uh, cash flow that we spend. So every time we sell a ton of iron ore, we take a few cents and provide it for a, a rainy day when we have to uh, rehabilitate. Great, thank you. Good morning, uh, Liam Fitzpatrick, Deutsche Bank. Um, first question, just on the <clears throat> excuse me, the, the downstream aluminium strategy. Is this Metalco deal? Is this like a one and done, or could we see more on that front? Because particularly on the on the green premiums theme it seems like you probably have to go further downstream or back downstream. So would that be something that you'd look at? Well, first of all, I may say that Metalco is not a standstill. I expect Metalco to grow a lot. <laughs> uh, it is already North America's biggest. I do think that it's not that we could, of course, go in and do recyclable in, in Australia, but it's just a tiny market compared to North America. So uh, we, need to, we need to be in markets where we have primary aluminium and where there is scale. So it's not that there's a lot of other options, but I do think that we have uh, really good uh, growth opportunities. Metalco, I'm going there in 10 days' time and I can't wait to see, uh, uh, see how, 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 how we, we want to grow the market. I like us to, to deepen that because it's a given that there will be more growth in secondary than in primary in the future. 
I know there's the history with the, the Alcan acquisition and the disposals, but would you consider moving back downstream into extrusions and areas <laughs> like that? Uh, look, let's, let us digest the Metalco first. And, and the quick follow-up is on, uh, on Yadar. There seem to be some positive murmurs recently. What's the state of play? At the yeah, moment? so in Davos I met with uh, President Vucic and uh, we had a very constructive meeting and he went out to the press afterwards and said that he wants to see the pro project progress. Um, so I'm very happy with that. Uh, I need to work with the government of Serbia, but he's still to appoint the government because there was an election in, in this December. So as soon as a new government is being appointed, uh, we uh, expect to engage with them on seeing how we can progress the project. Right. Let's go back to the, <coughs> to the line for two more questions. Uh, we've got about 10 minutes, so let's speed it up a little bit so we can get through everybody, please. The next question comes to the line of Glenn Lowcock from Baron Joey. Your line is open. Please ask a question. Oh, good morning, Yakov. Just maybe just drill down a little bit more into lithium, if I could. Yeah. You said earlier, you know, you want to be, you want strong ore bodies where Rio can use its technology. I mean, and you, and you say we've been through a bubble, which I guess we all agree with. But just when you look at the lithium industry, you know, like you've got upstream, you've got downstream. You know, where, where do you think the value lies in the in the industry now? Just your thoughts yeah. on how the industry is evolving and where you see the the, the best value. Thanks. It's a very good question, uh, Glenn. Thank you. Uh, I think it's fair to say that the Western world hasn't yet entirely solved its supply chain, which is not lithium, it's batteries. And how are you going to build the future uh, supply chains? And, mm. and we can see that we kind of could be part of that puzzle, and, and it is emerging. But I think it's also pretty clear that most countries that has lithium in the ground would like to have or will only accept that to be extracted if there's also the processing happening there. And therefore, our presence in lithium is likely to be both mining and processing. But I have to say, after you have produced uh, battery-grade lithium, whether it's, uh, uh, it's uh, what is it called, uh, carbonate, carbonate or hydroxide, uh, it doesn't matter, but then it stops for us. We're not going to go into cathode and anode productions, etc. So we're quite clear about what our role can play. But I think the, the supply chains are still to be defined. And, uh, and we are just slowly but surely progressing it. Well, I already answered that question. Yeah. And, and Jakob, just maybe a follow-up to that. You know, price formation is obviously key when trying to work out what the value is of a lithium asset. You know, the, the, the two, or the recent bubble, how, does, how do you make you think about the price formation now? Are you reconsidering what you think prices should be? Not, not, not really, because when we uh, took uh, the investment decisions on, for example, uh, Rincon, mm. that was before the big bubble, that was probably the same price as you have today. And in any case, we worked with some long-term prices. In a way, the way I would think about it is we are a big company uh, compared to many of the other lithium players. And we can probably better take the volatility. Uh, and I think lithium prices are bound to be volatile in the future. What really matters to us is what's going to be the average price over the next decade. Uh, if you know that, I'd, I'd like to know it. But we feel that there could be a decent business case here. Okay. And, and if I could just, with my second question, ask about just China. <laughs> there seems to be some concerns on growth on the ground. I mean, I realize we just came out of Chinese New Year. 
But is there anything you're hearing, any observations from your large team on the ground on the state of the Chinese economy that gives you concern for this year? Yeah, Glenn, it's uh, really sad you can't see uh, me wearing a very red tie today. Uh, uh, Happy New Year. It's the year of the dragon. Uh, that should that should be a good indicator for, for the year to come. Look, the, the, I am not an expert in everything in Chinese economy, but the Chinese economy that we are seeing, and that's obviously the very physical part of the Chinese economy, is growing. And we feel quite comfortable about that. I thought the slide that Peter is showing is super good. I was actually trying to nick that slide because, uh, because I, I think it just shows that, yes, there are issues in property, but the infrastructure and some of the industries like automotives is outpacing that and net-net the Chinese economy is growing. Okay, thanks very much. Nadia, one more question from the line and then we'll take another two here. Yes, of course. And now we're going to take our next question. And it comes from the line of Miles Alsop from UBS. Your line is open. Please ask a question. Oh, hi. It's, is it me, I think, um, just a name? But, um, so it's Miles here. So just uh, on lithium, uh, could you give us a bit, a bit of an update on RINC, on how much you spent, when you're hoping to get to FID, what is needed to get to FID? Um, yeah, how credible is that as a, a project in the pipeline? That's the first I'm- question. I'm leaving that question to Peter because I'm going to Rincon in 10 days' time, so I reserve my judgment. And I've been there. Um, so, uh, Mars, I think we're, we're spending on the lithium, the, the 3,000 project, and, and the capital costs are as disclosed, first production at the end of this year. So that's uh, all, all on track. Otherwise, uh, it's, it's studies for the, the, the bigger, more expanded case, which we're working through in parallel with that development of the 3,000. So still, still to be determined exactly uh, scale and capital costs of what that looks like. But, you know, we have said we, we think this is competitive at industry benchmarks. And page 15, uh, Miles, of the uh, op- project uh, table for the uh, Finkel 3,000 numbers. Okay, thank you. Maybe as a kind of follow-up just, uh, on um, kind of iron ore and medium-term so production, you're still talking about capacity 345 to 360. You know, I mean, we haven't talked about value over volume in iron ore. I mean, obviously there is a concern out there that the market will move to surplus. I mean, how are you thinking today around sort of managing the Pilbara production medium long term in a potentially softer sort of iron ore price environment with your kind of more marginal SP10 volumes and so on? Should we kind of plan for... Rio to be more disciplined uh, in in the future, or or to just push ahead as similarly ramps up. Yeah. So look, um, you never hear me talking about value or volumes. We are here to serve customers, but we should be disciplined and we should be very disciplined. And everything we develop is at the very low end of the cost curve. Mm. And we have now had a number of years with high iron ore prices. And the beauty of that is that there's actually quite a lot of production that has come in at a very high cost. And that means that there is much more support from the cost curve at higher prices than there were some years back. So I actually feel we are in a very good position with the iron ore market. Okay, thank Thank you. Matt, please, and then Alex, and then we'll wrap it up. Hi, Matt Green from Goldman Sachs. Um, Jakob, on resolution, you mentioned you're in the White House recently. Given we're in an election year, do you believe that if we see a change in government, you can see an acceleration of the permitting and development timeline? And if I could just follow up, uh, Peter, just 
2026 CapEx guidance uh, on the yet-to-be-sanctioned copper, had you budgeted for Escondido at all? And with that deferral, does that free up some of the budget to perhaps accelerate other copper options within your portfolio? Yeah, so let me start. Uh, I, I just think that resolution will happen. We are making progress, good progress, with the First Nations people. There are 11 tribes that claims uh, um, connection to the land. We're making really, really good progress there, including with the San Carlos tribe. So that's a kind of a first thing, because even if you get approval from the government, we also need to have uh, uh, FPIC with, uh, with the First Nation people. Then uh, there is an approval process, which in the U.S. also goes through the courts, and it's in the Ninth Circuits right now, and we'll just have to respect that process. But uh, leave no doubt that we are arguing uh, our case. Uh, but I think we are arguing to an open door because it's so much in the U.S. interest. Critical minerals have never been more important. The U.S. right now is consuming 2 million tons of copper. It only produces one. It has only got two smelters left. One of them is ours in Kennecott, and we can load that up from copper in resolution. And the U.S. demand of copper because of the energy transition is likely to go from two to four, and there's not a lot of copper production growing in the U.S. So I do think that it's... it's actually of national importance to develop it. So I'm very optimistic. The only thing I can't give you is a timeline around it. Uh, and on Escondido, I mean, remembering the three billion when we talk about it is for incremental copper equivalent units, so right across the portfolio. And so uh, the Escondido numbers are embedded in our forward numbers, um, but not part of that three billion. And finally, Alex, ahead of your big conference on Monday. So be kind. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, yes, yeah, so Alex Pierce, uh, BMO Capital Markets. Well, in fact, let me just have the tough questions now, so it's going to be an easy one on Monday. This is an easy one. Um, so on IOC, you mentioned uh, actually you've got better volumes at the end of the year after a pretty challenging Q2, um, but it still seems to be running, at least from a guidance perspective, below the long-term target there. Um, and it does seem like it's infrastructure constrained. I just wondered maybe you can comment on some of the initiatives you've got in place to try and meet that guidance you've got this year and, and also can you just provide an update on some of the projects in terms of value add I think HBI was, is being looked at etc So Alex I mean, I mean, it was a tough year for, for IEC but I mean they did lose almost a month's full production due to those wildfires and uh, that when you sort of take that into account you can see that gives us a, a more of a platform going into 2024 on production terms so that's, that's the, the, the big piece. I mean, haulage, we had some constraints, so we had a bit, bit of extra inventory in IOC as well, uh, just on the haulage, because we had you know, production actually very good or suddenly going right down, and so that, that made the whole system a bit unbalanced, and we're working through that. I mean, I think they're, they're, they are really sort of focused on, on the safe production system and working this through. I mean, there's a big piece around asset integrity at IOC, and a big piece around pro driving productivity through the integrated system to really get the most out of that. I mean, I think on, on product, I mean, it's just that the product, the IOC product is, is you know, low impurity pellets, high grade pellets. So, I mean, it, it will be in, in that world of sort of steel, uh, green steel production that Jacob talked to. I mean, it's, it's right in the sort of middle section there of, of uh, you know, for HBI production. I mean, it's going to be a product in demand, and that's where we want to position it. Look, it is by any standard a disappointing production year last year from IOC. Maybe I'm too patient, but I am very patient because 
we are learning from these things. We have, you know that the asset has been on the block. We have not maintained it well for a long period of time. That takes time. And the team is getting on. They're getting more competences. And we just need to get better, better maintenance in place to, to, to make this stable. I would have loved to have seen it happening faster. But, you know, in a way, every time you have a setback with, a, with an issue, it has a negative short-term impact, but it also has the opportunity for real learning and saying, how can we avoid that this ever happens again? Great. Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody, for coming very early this morning. Thank you for staying up late in Sydney and, and Melbourne. Jakob and Peter, looking forward to seeing many of you face-to-face in the next two weeks. For, don't, for those we don't see, see you in five months here again. Thank you. <laughs>